You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 443, ex post facto. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore an episode of Star Trek, examining it for morals, meanings, and messages, and seeing if our point of view can hold up under Vulcan cross-examination. This week, ex post facto, the one where Star Trek Voyager meets double indemnity, and well, as the saying goes, at least someone will always have Paris. We'll get back to ex post facto in a moment, right after Norman tells all of you about the other factos of how you can stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, fresh from implantation with all of this episode's trivia, here once again is John Champion. Why, thank you for that. Let's talk trivia for ex post facto. We have a story by Evan Carlos Summers, and you may remember that Evan wrote three episodes of DS9, notably Melora, which paralleled Evan's own experience as a quadriplegic after an accident when he was a teenager. Later on, Evan produced and directed a documentary of some acclaim about his life called The Seeker. We lost Evan in 2010. So while Evan gets both a story and teleplay credit here, he conceived many of the more sci-fi elements of this story. It was Michael Piller, uh, also with a teleplay credit, who really set about scripting and finding the mood of the episode. The film noir elements were his influence. Also important to know that this script was written very early in Voyager's development, before Robbie had been cast as Paris, which means it relied more heavily on some of the early character descriptions, like Paris being a womanizer. It was directed by LeVar Burton, not someone who needs an introduction here, but it is worth noting that this is the first time a former TNG star has directed an episode of Voyager. It was Burton, along with producer David Livingston, who really got into the creative side of the film noir aesthetic. Burton had at one point thought about shooting it all in black and white, but they decided ultimately to let those scenes be the flashback sequences only. Now let's talk a little bit about recycling in production. It happens. We know that it does, especially in Star Trek. The matte painting of the Benean City has been used many times on Star Trek. It goes all the way back to TNG's first season episode, Angel One. And the ships used by the Namiri are so common as to be pretty generic at this point. You have to go back to TNG again for its debut in The Most Toys. And from there, well, it it shows up in various guises on TNG, DS9, and now Voyager. Our cast spotlight this week turns to Robert Picardo as the Doctor. And, you know, well, he's our Doctor here, coincidentally, but Bob was almost a Doctor in real life. 
He grew up in Philadelphia, went to college at Yale, where, yes, he intended to study medicine. Not that he started acting and found himself on Broadway in pretty short order, and ever since those days in the mid-70s has pretty successfully bounced around from stage to screens, both big and small. It's nearly impossible to sum up his career or even favorite roles here. On TV, audiences saw a lot of Bob on the acclaimed China Beach, as well as The Wonder Years. Later, sci-fi fans welcomed him to Stargate SG-1 and Atlantis in recurring roles. On the big screen, he left an impression in inner space as the cowboy. Uh, Bob originally auditioned for Neelix when Star Trek came calling. Uh, they switched it up, and he improvised some of the famous I'm a doctor, not a you know, fill-in-the-blank line, uh, which made the casting directors really take notice. And yes, Bob is a singer from his college days in an a cappella group to Broadway. Uh, we'll probably see a bit of that as time goes on. Oh, oh, and we also want to mention that Bob is a member and on the board of directors of the Planetary Society, so go check them out at planetary.org. Let's meet our guest cast. On the Benian homeworld, we meet a few locals. The doctor, who remains nameless, is played by Aaron Lustig. This is the first of his two Star Trek appearances. The next one will be on Enterprise. He's been working regularly since the mid-80s on everything from comedies to dramas and soap operas and a few feature films in the mix, too, like Darkman, Edward Scissorhands, and The Day After Tomorrow. Francis Guinan plays Cray, the Minister of Science. He's got three Trek appearances total, two on Voyager, one on Enterprise. He's another actor whose work spans multiple genres and can be seen in features like Constantine and Speed 2. Like many actors we've discussed, though, he has a huge background in live theater, spending a lot of time in Chicago at the famed Steppenwolf Company, where he is an ensemble member and has been nominated for multiple of the prestigious Jeff Awards. The ill-fated Talon Wren is played by Ray Reinhardt, and you have absolutely seen him in a more natural-looking treatment when he was Admiral Aaron in the TNG Season 1 episode, Conspiracy. Reinhardt is from New York and started his on-screen professional career in the late 50s, and he has appeared in some genre and popular films like Time After Time, written and directed by Nick Meyer, and you can catch him in another favorite, the Hunt for Red October. Finally, Liddell Wren is played by Robin McKee. Her pro-acting resume isn't too long, though there are some interesting mentions in there. She did appear on an episode of the TV series Weird Science. She was in the first Speed movie, and she was in a comedy called Wagons East alongside Robert Picardo and Ethan Phillips the year before this episode of Voyager was produced. I forget. Is the instinct basic or fatal? Is the attraction fatal or basic? Never mind. Let's hear John do the recap. Prologue. It was a dark and stormy night. Tom Paris is reliving a memory, guided by an unknown voice. He sees a dog a rainstorm through the windows of a conservatory, and himself in an embrace with an alien woman. Another voice, Tallinn, confronts Tom as the blurry images overlaid with some alien text plays out. 
Tallinn is the woman's husband, and over Tom's objections, accuses him of stealing her, then stating that he'll report it all to Captain Janeway. Tom, both in real life and in the memory, continues to object. This isn't the way it happened. But the memory plays out, and Tom very clearly lunges toward Tallinn, stabbing and killing him. Cut back to real time. A sweaty, anxious Tom Paris is being read his sentence by an alien authority to live out his victim's last moments every 14 hours for the rest of his life. Act 1. On the USS Voyager, Kess is in a meeting with the EMH, working on her medical education, but also contemplating a name for himself, something inspirational, historical perhaps. His thoughts are interrupted by a call from the bridge that a shuttle is returning with one injured crewman. It's Harry Kim, who was forced to leave the Benia homeworld without Tom. Kim is in rough shape, but he does manage to explain that the two of them were working with Talon Wren, who is a Benian physicist, helping them with an engineering issue that diverted Voyager there in the first place. Everything was fine. Voyager's visitors welcomed by the Ministry of Science and Tallinn Wren, who even invited Tom and Harry to his home for dinner. They meet his wife, Liddell, who immediately catches Tom's eye, but she's abrasive at the very idea that her husband has brought uninvited guests. He's a workaholic. She's had enough. Even the excuse of the war that their world is engaged in with the Namiri seems to be a convenience to take Tallinn's attention away from Liddell. She excuses herself from the dinner table, bored with the talk of the war, the Voyager shuttle evading Numiri patrols, and the work that remains to be done. Later that night, Harry and Tallinn were at work while Tom's mind and eyes wandered. They saw each other the next day, too, when Professor Tallinn Wren was murdered. But Harry wasn't allowed to see his shipmate again. Tom Paris was accused of murdering a brilliant scientist, an expert on Benian warships, Harry was sequestered, interrogated for two days, and sent home. Now all Janeway can do is set a course for the Benian homeworld. Act 2. Captain Janeway consults with Neelix about the rather delicate situation with Lieutenant Paris. Neelix knows the danger of approaching the Benian world and the likelihood that they will be confronted by aggressive Numiri warships. Soon enough, the Numiri arrive in a single patrol vessel— the captain of that ship is straightforward. Voyager will be committing an act of war if it in any way aids the Benians, but Janeway assures him they are only interested in rescuing their crewmen. Very well, and the Numiri patrol ship is out. Arriving at their destination, Janeway and Tuvok confront the Benian Minister of Science, Cray, about Paris's condition. He was convicted and punished with their method isolated memory engrams from the victim, hosting those for evidence in the trial, and then transplanted into the perpetrator to relive the experience for the remainder of his life. Now it's Tom's turn to recount his version of the story to Janeway and Tuvok. Yes, he and Harry met Tolan Rand at his house, and yes, Liddell seemed very distant from her husband. Tom wanted to talk to her, and she expressed her displeasure with Tolan. They get closer. It gets flirty. But the story is interrupted when Tom starts to experience the memory engrams again. They're painful, knocking him unconscious since there were issues matching the engrams to a human brain. Janeway convinces the minister to allow her to bring Paris back to Voyager where, potentially, 
his neurological trauma can be addressed, with a promise that they won't leave until Paris is exonerated. Act 3. In sickbay, the EMH reports that the Benin procedure is causing serious damage the longer Paris experiences the playback of those engrams. Tuvok has an idea, though. He'd like to use an autonomic response analysis when he next questions Paris. If he's telling the truth about not killing Wren, then either Liddell is lying, or somehow Tallinn is, from beyond the grave. Tuvok also pays a visit to the Wren household, greeted by Liddell's dog that doesn't like strangers. Not that that's super important or anything. He interviews Liddell about the murder. Curiously, she's staying in the same home right where it all happened. And she opens up to Tuvok about how their marriage was over long ago. Tom just gave her the push that she needed to tell Tolan on that day that she was leaving him. According to Liddell, she found Tom at the Engineering Institute after she broke the news to her husband. They left, walked home in the rain, because, remember, it was also a dark and stormy night, and then things got slightly more intimate. And by intimate, I mean she made tea. They watched the storm. And then Tom came home when Tom murdered him. That's the story, and she's sticking with it. Tuvok is called back to Voyager as Lieutenant Paris is waking up. He doesn't remember anything past the T, except waking up in a cell. And according to the EMH's system, Paris is telling the truth. The Numeri have shown up again, though, and they are less chatty than they were last time. No words are exchanged, just weapons fire from two Numeri ships. And while Voyager is holding its own defensively, Chakotay suggests a Maquis tactic he and Bolana picked up. They fake some damage, and then when those ships get close enough, open up fire to disable the attackers. It works. They're gone. For now. Turning our attention back to the murder investigation, Tuvok says that Paris is convinced he's telling the truth, so without additional evidence, maybe it's time for him to take a more dramatic step, entering into a mind meld with Paris to experience the engram memory himself. Given what the Benian procedure is doing to Tom's brain already, it's a risk for Tuvok to meld, but he makes the case that this might be the only way to prove his innocence. Tuvok does indeed meld with Lieutenant Paris and sees the memory of the murder from Tallinn's point of view play out. It's painful, but Tuvok comes away unscathed and with the need to see Harry Kim right away. Kim was working with Professor Wren and knows his research. That could reveal who killed the professor and why the Namiri attacked. Act 5. Janeway calls the Minister of Science, who is joined by a Benian doctor. She explains that Paris's implants must be removed as they are causing such severe neurological damage, and the Benian officials agree. They'll come up with some alternative, and in a show of good faith, Janeway dispatches Paris and Kim in a shuttle back to the Benian homeworld. Of course, an Amiri ship is there to intercept, and outgunned, they allow the shuttle to be captured. A boarding party of Namiri step in, identifying Tom Paris specifically, and before they can do anything, the two are beamed out of there and back to Voyager. Then it's time for Janeway to give the Numiri an ultimatum. Release the shuttle, or she'll blow it up, taking out the Numiri ship with it. They relent. Now Voyager, with the crew and shuttle back, carry on to orbit the Benian planet. 
Tuvok assembles all interested parties at the Wren household to drop his bomb. Paris was not the man who Tolan Wren saw. The engrams were altered. Not only that, but Liddell is lying, duh, and probably spiked Paris's tea. Tuvok has Paris and Liddell stand next to each other. Paris is taller than her, but the images in the engram were of someone who was equal to Liddell's height. Plus, the killer precisely stabbed Tolan in the heart, a piece of physiology a human wouldn't know. There's another detail. The stream of symbols at the bottom of the engram. Paris assumed it was just part of the process, but indeed, it was an encoded message intended for the Namiri, who had also worked so hard to capture Paris. Someone on the inside was passing along information about his movements to those Numiri. And there's only one person it could be, the doctor. He's the one who knew the process for the engrams. He's the one who knew Paris's whereabouts. And he's the one who allowed him to leave the planet. He also happens to be the same height as Liddell, which means all along, the engrams were altered. It's a fake! The doctor will hear none of it. But Tuvok has just one more thing. Liddell's dog. Nika runs in and immediately runs up to the doctor, clearly not afraid of a stranger. Tom Paris is free to go, presumably with those implants taken out of his head. And long after the incident, he thanks Tuvok in the mess hall for his investigative skills. Tuvok tells him, though, had he been guilty, he would have pursued the truth just as vigilantly. And while Tuvok prefers solitude, Tom Paris lets him know that he made a friend today. The end. Uh, a riveting uh, review <laughs> and recap there, John. <laughs> well, riveting. thank you. Thank yeah. you very much, Norman. You know, one thing that we haven't done for a while, and, and certainly not uh, since we started covering Voyager, we haven't done the title game in a while. So it's time for yeah. the title the game. The title game. Yes, please. Because ex post facto is very specific, and it's Latin, mm-hmm. I thought I would just try and uh, inform everyone uh, to, put, uh, to put the understanding of the title like in the context of what we're going to say. So from the Cornell School of Law website, the definition of ex post facto means it's a, what it's Latin for from a thing done afterward. And to expound upon that, ex post facto is most typically used to refer to a criminal statute that punishes actions retroactively thereby criminalizing conduct that was legal when originally performed. Excellent. I'm glad that you brought that up. It's also a good kind of logical fallacy when you talk about ex post facto reasoning, where uh, you're using the outcome to sort of justify whatever happened before when sometimes those aren't related. Uh, So I I love that you did that. And by the way, our boss will be very happy because Rod always likes to do the the title explanation title game when we can. I'm just going to go ahead and say that an episode like The Cloud didn't need that i tried but cornell <laughs> school of law yeah had nothing for it had nothing so. for the cloud weird weird no. <laughs> um all right well let, let, let's walk through it you know the opening of this episode definitely an homage to noir murder mysteries and i i do like those cuts back to tom lying there with that one bead of sweat it, it had a very like total recall feel to it and he's convincing his, his agitation is convincing i thought and speaking of cuts, uh, seeing you uh, as as you, like the person who's doing the stabbing, but also the person who's receiving the stabbing, 
in that point of view. Very interesting stylistic choice. That did get my attention. I'm like, where are they going with this? Yeah. Yeah. And look, speaking of somebody who does not like to listen to himself or watch himself in playback, um, it would be even worse to watch me stab somebody. So I, I feel for him right away. It, Was that your penance then? That would be your penance to that. That would be. You, it's okay. just to have to watch myself. Yeah, that, that, would, that would be terrible. Now, I, I will say that as a set design note, I really appreciate that revive some of those next gen era wall panels with the diagonal stripes on half of them. Those are great used throughout the Benin homeworld. So, look, we're far away in the Delta Quadrant, but they had some connection to uh, some interesting wall design. And, um, oh, oh, I, I will say, you know, for, for all the uh, experimentation and kind of flexing artistic muscles with the noir style in this, I really like that bit of cinematography of the scene at the beginning with the EMH and Kess sitting mm-hmm. at the desk. Love that when you get a nice moving camera uh, around them it, it's yeah it, it's just really nice it gives some life to that and of course i love the in joke of naming the three historic doctors galen jonas sock and then mm-hmm. doctor not mr spock dr yeah. spock because as a star trek fan and i'm sure you felt it too the frustration of people calling mr spock dr spock and certainly of a, a, a generation where the boomer generation would have had Dr. Spock because he was mm-hmm. – uh, he was baby, baby doctor. doctor. Yep. <laughs> That's He's the one. Baby doctor. Yep. Yeah. I like that scene quite a bit too. And I, I also like that they looked like they were playing Battleship with their computer <laughs> yes. consoles. Like, right. Uh, you know, facing each at, other. Like, facing yeah, each other. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm I'm paying more attention now to like what is on these props, and they had actual like interactive Elcars displays that are starting to become a little bit more developed, and especially in sick bay, you know, when you're seeing it like say on Tom's bio bed and on some of the wall panels later, uh, the mm-hmm. production value is looking really really nice. And uh, on the DVDs, the quality of the DVDs allow you to really look at them, and there's mm-hmm. they're really nice seamless vacuum formed. Uh, plastiform or plastic mm-hmm. uh, props that are being used, which yep. are really nice. Yeah, they, they have a good, like, real-world look to them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I, I, I will say that this is one of those places where it's good to have a guy like Neelix around. I, look, we're, we're not going to dump on Neelix all the time, <laughs> I swear. We'll definitely find all of those places that we like him, as we have pointed out uh, thus far on our, our foray into Voyager. But this is one of those where at least he can point out to you the good guys in this case the Benians, instead of the bad guys aka the numiri uh, uh just in case the difference in makeup uh wasn't a tip-off i mean that would be the first thing you know you just see mm-hmm. them coming you're like oh we're gonna side with the Benians. look how adorable they are with their uh bird feathers on their heads which brings me to that makeup <laughs> <laughs> um okay look I-, I never want to besmirch all of the excellent work done by the artist who worked on Star Trek. Sometimes they don't have good days. It's high sure. pressure. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of design to be cranked out. Um, this episode was one or several of those days. I, I kind of, I got to say that I think that Hawk on Buck Rogers looked better. That was the same parallel that I drew. How could you not? Yeah. I mean, you had a completely like uh, a feather domed, you know, type of prosthetic going on. Mm-hmm. I get what they're going for. And you're right. Not everyone's going to be winners. Yeah. 
everyone tries to put their best foot forward, but we're looking, you know, we're talking about the law of averages here of like what, say, Michael Westmore and his department are trying to put together mm-hmm. on a weekly, yearly basis, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm surprised that things like turn out as good as they do all the time right. on a consistent basis versus, say, like one of these like uh, offshoots. Exactly. That, that don't. Uh, when they, <laughs> when they, when they finally like bring uh, uh, Harry back, and then he's in sick bay, mm-hmm. the captain just like walks right at him. Is like, what happened to Tom? He's like, oh hi, captain, <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, All right. In case anyone cares. Oh god, right? can like, I get a glass of water? Yeah, let, let, let's hope right. that those are just lines that had to get cut out. Like that—that's the part we didn't see. There, there's some missing footage there. That's like, Harry, are you okay? We were worried about you. Go ahead. <laughs> Right. It's like blah 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 blah. Oh hi Kate. (laughs) (laughs) And I I know this is nineties science fiction, and I know that in some cases, and I do agree, like the opening sets and stuff like that looked very, very good, but when we got to the minister's office, I'm like, dude, this is like my dentist's office uh, from yes. like the 1990s. So like, again, with some of the the, the makeup and the prosthetics, yeah. they don't really hit the mark. Sometimes alien world becomes 90s dental office. Just very. Hey, and sometimes a 90s dentist office becomes Star Trek. Uh, if you watch Trekkies, you know what we mean. Uh, okay, look, we, we will have many comments and criticisms and, and uh, maybe some praise uh, for this episode. Um, I, I do want to talk about, you know, the dialogue is very stylistic, for better or for worse. Sometimes in this episode it really fires, sometimes it doesn't. I love love the exceedingly passive-aggressive dialogue (laughs) with Tolan and Liddell right from the start because it's so uncomfortable and so real. Like It's fine, John. It's it's fine. Whatever. (laughs) It's fine. Okay. Uh, Well, you know, okay, then I guess we'll just move on. Uh, I I have nothing else to say about it. Uh, It's perfect, really. (laughs) It's fine. So... (laughs) Uh Okay, so... That's great. You know, I, I have no problem with that. It's when it's when Tolan says, good doggy, to an actual dog. Yeah. Like, again, with the whole, like, 90s dentist's office, and it's just, just things that it takes you out of the illusion. When you sure. say something earthbound, like, doggy, yeah. to an actual dog-looking creature, you're like, all right, well, where am I? Am I, like, you know, on Earth, just, you know, in, say, uh, an ambassador's apartment or something? Yeah. Or in the Delta Quadrant. It should be just a little stranger. It, it, yeah, well, exactly. It, I, and and that's sort of the rough thing about Star Trek. You have to reinvent. You have to come up with a new world and a whole new civilization around the people on that world every single week. Um, or not. Or not. We can talk about good examples of not having to do that. We'll get to that. It's perfect. It's fine. It's fine. But look, look, I agree with you because in Star Trek's long history of space dogs, um, you can now supplement unicorn dog with mohawk dog. (laughs) That's who we meet in this episode. And, and speaking of alien cultures, I I will, you know, look for as conventional as a lot of the Benian stuff might be. Look, in the Wren household, they don't just have a liquor cabinet. They have a space liquor cabinet. Right. So that's, you know, we give them credit where that's due. And obviously, they have space liquor cabinet because it was furnished by Champion Catering. Uh, catering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you would have your space utensils and your space napkins along with oh, yeah. your space liquor cabinet. Yeah, but which is full of space liquor. 
So, right. yeah, of yeah. course. Um, and you can tell because it's brightly colored. By the way, so I didn't mention in the trivia because it is worth keeping in mind for this episode that this was written before Tom Paris had really been fleshed out. What is his problem? I mean, look, there are many problems. There, but, but literally, like, ah. his whole, even just says it straight up to anybody who will listen to him, like, oh, this is so boring. I'm not going to do the thing that I was assigned to do, losers. Ah. <laughs> you know, like, that's, wow. I have so much to say about it. I, yeah. I rarely ever say this, John. I rarely ever say this about anything in Star Trek. I, I find the word hate to be a very, very specific, mm. very powerful word. Yeah. I hate that scene. Yeah. As you should. Yeah. And I will go into that a lot later. Okay. So Liddell, that whole sequence with her playing the femme fatale with the cigarette. Yeah. When she said, you know, the whole like scene hinges on good can get very boring. I eye rolled so hard at that scene, I could literally see my tonsils. <laughs> That's that is quite the eye roll, man. Yeah, that is. And look, it, it is worth pointing out that yeah, all of this stuff is based on multiple film noir and then even neo noir from the time. So there, there's a lot of that influence here. But the question will always be like, does it work or not? We'll get to that in our wrap-up as well. I love how Tuvok asks the EMH for his reports, and the EMH is like, oh, it's too complicated for you. <laughs> like, dude, okay, have you met Vulcans? Because <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, that yeah. those are kind of good moments because, you they know, are, like, yeah. like Tim and, and, and Bob, they're they're good together. Like, they act well together. So, yeah, of course. Uh, of course. That's super funny. Yeah. So let me get this straight. I just want to put it all on the table here, the logic of it. Yeah. We're going to punish an alien outsider with our law of chemically implanting alien memories into his human brain. And there might be problems with it so that you might have to beam him up back to their own surgeon oh, to study and, yeah. and, 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 uh, and observe. Yeah. Like, is everyone on that planet an idiot? Yeah. Well, uh, you, you, you may have uh, hit the nose, uh, hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. Investigator Tuvok is best Tuvok. You cannot yeah. persuade mm -hmm. Investigator Tuvok, not even with feminine wiles, nope. because good is boring. Yep. Yep. Right? Yep. Oh, um, and I don't know how you felt about this. I mean, we are dealing with an era of Trek that is very specific. So that entire sequence with Liddell taking off Tom's boots yep. and wearing soaked, clingy, white clothing, yep. and then kneeling down in front of him. I'm not yeah. a prudish person, yep. but that's pretty racy, you know, for 1995. But I was waiting for, I am 16 going on 17, <laughs> just to save the scene. There, there you go. Just bring you it know? back to something more wholesome. No, it, yeah. it was a sexy scene. I mean, right? I got it, it, you know, I'll, I'll give them their due where they earned it. That uh, For as inconsistent an episode as this is, that was... That was quite a scene. Speaking of inconsistencies, I love Chakotay's Maquis trick, which just seems to be a great trick to use up some effects budget for the episode because mm -hmm. they needed some spaceships. So they right. did it, you know. And I love, there is a great, uh, uh, the, that great bit where Chakotay says, you know, well, it worked against those Starfleet runabouts. And Janeway says, you're lucky I wasn't commanding one of them. And I right. just, what? oh, <laughs> slow clap. And that, that, that was such a great Janeway, almost Kirk-like moment. It, oh, yet chef's kiss, Janeway. 
love, I love that. that scene because she's pushing back. She's like, you know, when someone says, I beat you this way, it's like, well, if I rolled a 20, I would have won. Of course you would have. <laughs> yeah. You know, of course right, you would have. Right. <laughs> but even like the, the great part of that whole scene was, you know, when Chakotay says, I have an idea. I haven't tried it yet. We're under fire. What could go wrong? And Jane was like, go for it. Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Right? Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, uh, and I do. Oh, going back to the EMH and Tuvok, I, I really I love the EMH saying to Tuvok, "I know more about mind melds than you do," because look, I, it, it is totally in character for these two to have that conversation that they're having. And I still I love the idea, which you've talked about on Mission Log from way back in the beginning, just the idea of a computer being able to analyze vastly more data than any person could. And that is one of the strengths, yet also one of the worries about that ability. It's very cool. I love how there is kind of like that scientific approach to what the doctor is saying, but also there's the mysticism of saying mind melt. I love Neelix in this. He's like, a yeah. what? A mind, what? A yeah. what? Yeah, 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 yeah. You needed that. You needed that. That was super yeah. funny. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I love, again, Janeway with the great moments here. Short, but great moments. She's just like, yeah, look, I'm going to blow up your ship in 30 seconds in transmission. <laughs> yeah. Corbin might maneuver style Janeway yeah, right there. Exactly. Exactly. And they, busted, they should have busted out some Tranya. They should. <laughs> that would have been the way to do it. And you know where you get the space uh, Tranya? You get it out of your space liquor cabinet. Oh, furnished by Champion Catering. Why can't Tom just do a Dixon Hill thing in the holodeck like a normal person? It would save everyone so much trouble. We will get right back to Ex Post Facto, but first, a thanks to you, our supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash mission log. You know, Norman, uh, our Patreon community keeps growing, and it's like every day we see new signups and people who are finding what we have to offer there. Uh, It's the early access to our shows, kind of behind-the-scenes moments, and most importantly, the word can't be overstated enough, the community. And it's a community that we are very proud of. And when we first started doing this, John, like you and I just wanted to to have these virtual conventions during the COVID lockdown. I think we started having some just general meetups on Zoom, and mm-hmm. then it became a little bit more regular. And then we decided, you know what, it would be great if we could just afford our patrons and people that you know subscribe to us and supported us the ability to be able to forge this community and create like little mini conventions, little get-togethers, and it just blossomed into. So much more. Yeah, and it's awesome because now every week, well, every day, we know that there's activity in the Mission Log Discord mm-hmm. that is exclusive to that community. Uh, but then we get to do our live hangouts there and chats, chat about episodes, chat about whatever is on your minds in a fun, relaxed, and very friendly environment. So there's so much to our Patreon, whether you're there for the swag or you're there to get the behind the scenes and exclusive content that we post there or to hang out in the Discord. Uh, you can get all of that for as little as a dollar a month there are discounts if you do a yearly uh, subscription so come check it out patreon.com slash mission log and i want to say a special thanks to some of our newest members at patreon there's theron jama gail alex laura ellie denny andy thank all of you and thank everybody who has signed up at patreon.com slash mission log i hope we will see you there 
All right, Norman, should we do the serious stuff first? <laughs> I mean... Isn't it all serious, though? I guess it is. I mean... Are I, we the ones that aren't just taking it so seriously? <laughs> well, look, I, I think we can run into the trap of being sort of blinded by the stylistic shortcomings, mm-hmm. let's say. You know, so, you know, going all the way back to those notoriously, quote-unquote, bad episodes of Star Trek, like, can you find good stuff to talk about in Spock's brain? Sure. I'm not saying that this is Spock's brain, but this might be a complicated episode to approach. But I do think there are some cool ideas to talk about in this. And if we can separate ourselves from the style a little bit, I think right out of the gate, there's this very interesting science fiction idea about crime and punishment. Mm-hmm. And I, I the, the, the thought that kind of went through my mind was asking myself, is the Benian sentence, is that a cruel and unusual punishment? And I think back to uh, our friend Chief O'Brien, Miles O'Brien, in Hard Time, who was given this psychological punishment that was very different from just the idea of a physical punishment. Now, I did have physical ramifications, obviously, but it, it it's a kind of torture it is a psychological torture mm-hmm. but at the same time can you make a case that this kind of punishment is more humane or maybe more fair um so let, let's talk it through there's one way to go incarceration or to an extreme like a death penalty a physical punishment like that is something like this what the Benians do Is this what we would want to see in terms of a punishment where the perpetrator actually has to live and more importantly, feel what their victims experienced? I mean, isn't that the kind of satisfaction that we want or is wanting that um, a little too vindictive is a little too eye for an eye? Not that somebody would be locked away although there can definitely be value to that, but rather that the perpetrator actually feels what they've done, is that bad enough? Or is it the over and over part that's bad enough? What do you think? Well, there are sentences akin to what you're talking about in real time today mm. where where criminals have to, they have to uh, report to the family on the anniversary of the crime that they committed if they took that person's, that, that family member's life. Say, for instance, mm. uh, criminal X murdered innocent, innocent Y. Mm-hmm. And I hate to put it in these terms, but I'm trying to make kind of like a clinical analysis of what we're talking about. That person, that criminal, with um, underneath uh, court-appointed supervision, has to visit that family in a tone Atone for the yeah. p- for the life that they have stolen from that family, and I have heard that you know, with varying degrees of success, that is therapeutic on both sides. Oh, because interesting! You can't. We were talking about this on Phage, where mm-hmm. a murder isn't rectified by another taking of life. Janeway can't. She wouldn't be able to save Neelix by murdering the other Verdean. Yeah. You know, one, uh, one wrong or two wrongs don't necessarily make a right, you know, when it comes to uh, justice or, or pursuing, you know, uh, a way of rectifying a wrong. So there's a certain sense of healing that was going on between the criminal and the family because 
there was a loss, yeah, uh, a huge loss uh, in that very raw, empty space that allowed both the criminal and the family to heal through that loss. Is it the perfect solution? Of course not. The perfect solution would be not having that crime have been committed at all. Of course. But it did. Yeah. You know, yeah. so yeah. here's a here's another thing that that I thought of regarding crime and punishment. And this mm-hmm. is very much uh, akin to uh, one what they're doing here too being in, in general science fiction-esque. The mm-hmm. Kafka-esque quality of reliving the crime as as described in his in the penal colony which was published in 1919 hmm. where the crime is inscribed on the criminal's body over the course of several hours as they slowly die from their wounds the Whoa. dying criminal usually experiences some type of epiphany after a few hours of slow death at the hands of the device Okay, so look, the epiphany comes, but then they die. So what value is the epiphany? You know, this is sort of a... It's sort of a trope in movies, and I think that's why, you know, popular fiction is the way it is, why why it is popular, why it takes root, is because there's a kind of fantasy fulfillment that sees the bad guy get their comeuppance but they get their comeuppance in a way that they understand what they did. Mm-hmm. And that's really what, you know, the 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 right side, the the correct side, the good. I mean, I'm I'm using terms like good and bad very loosely here, but I'm just, you know, we're talking about very black and white characters situations that play out in movies and TV shows and and some popular fiction is that we want to see the one who has done wrong actually understand the reason uh, you know the the reasons behind what they're doing and the effects that they're having and there's something maybe satisfying about just seeing the bad guy dispatched mm-hmm. and gone but that is less satisfying than actually winning the day by seeing them actually get it and if by this horrific thing that you're describing that they get it but then they die. Well, whose purpose does that serve? You know? Well, I guess it really depends on what that epiphany is. Well, like, what's the definition mm-hmm. of that? Did they understand? And but like, the moment the epiphany is, thank, thank goodness I'll be dead over, soon so I right? don't have to go through this anymore. You yeah, know? But there's a certain sense of yeah. vengeance in that justice, which, again, yeah. describing the audience and, and what the audience wants. But there's also another interesting concept to say, like, what, what Tom is going through, they implanted engrams of the murder into his brain now this is dealing with a moral person you know so what Mm -hmm. happens if you do that to somebody who's already a sociopath or a psychopath it doesn't change them right it's kind of like throwing gasoline on a fire right you know it just gives them more opportunity to maybe even critique their own technique like oh that was really sloppy of me i should do this differently next time yeah, if there's yeah, next yeah. time right, right. Now, and and also again with tom going back to the kafkaesque uh, example what's happening to tom is that eventually he would have perished because their engram technique doesn't fit human physiology which yeah. is why he's having the issue that he's having later on in the episode this is why that tuvok had to mind meld with him in order to get those engrams 
out of his system. Right, right. Or, I mean, I think yeah. it, it, it's such an interesting conceit because I, I, I do think that generally, you know, if you look at the course of human history, we fail over and over again with some sort of reasonable version of crime and punishment. Our punishments uh, tend to be way out of scale with what those crimes are or ideally what you want is for people to be rehabilitated understand the situation so that they can then become productive members of society and not just wasting away and taking up resources in a prison somewhere mm-hmm. and this seems like it, it's an idea that the you know the Beneans think is helpful they think is progressive and productive you can take somebody who committed a crime you're not going to lock them up you're not going to take them away from their families not going to do all this but you will make them relive and and on this visceral emotional level relive and truly understand the consequences of their actions Um, at the same time it could either be horrific torture or as you're pointing out lost could be completely lost on the the person uh, uh, on whom it's it's administered, you know, or over time uh, they could become so calloused to it that it wouldn't even matter. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Could could you get to a point where somebody could just sit there and take the torture and yeah. not not be tortured by yeah. it? Like I get know? it. I, I did wrong, but showing me this again in my brain isn't going to make it any less so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's uh, another couple of ideas floating around in this episode and one I I really don't have notes on it but I I do just want to sort of tag that this episode gets into a couple of ideas that are interesting first of all what Tuvok is asking of the doctor is a lie detector Mm -hmm. (laughs) and which are notoriously inaccurate and unreliable uh but i guess by the 24th century we're saying well maybe there's some basis in this we just have to go with it that this is a technology that is allowable and and accepted by them but i i would still be very wary of that um and then this idea of false memories though because i like that tuvok says well mr paris believes what he is saying and that is a very important distinction there that tuvok has not made up his mind yet about the truth of you know the the uh, you know the the nuts and bolts of the case that he's investigating, but at least he's gotten past that barrier to say that well, regardless of what actually happened, Paris believes what he is saying, and that's where things get very disturbing and can be very malleable when it comes to relying on memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to actually trying to solve a crime or get to the truth at a certain matter. So I thought it was cool that we dipped into that a wee bit. I also liked the the logic of the mind meld being used to try and sift through what is the actual truth versus mm-hmm. what the engrams uh, have, uh, have Tom believe is the actual truth. Like, yeah, I, I understand yeah. what the doctor was saying. Like the doctor is saying, like I understand how mind meld works more than you do mm-hmm. scientifically because I have like thousands of Vulcan doctors, you know, information past and present into my head, so I can pull from that. And I was like, yeah. So where are you getting at with this doc? And he's like, oh, Tuvok is going to do a mind meld on a person whose memories have been chemically altered to believe a certain truth actually exists, as opposed to try and pull the actual truth out. So he's there's like digging through layers and layers and layers of right. 
memories. And what would that do to Tuvok? Now I see like what the doctor was saying, like, oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, you're not just flipping a page. You are like reading an entire book and trying to sift out what the truth is. What will that do to you? Yeah. Right? I don't know. Yeah. There's no way of knowing. Let, let's talk about what I think is probably the moment that was most interesting to you and me. <laughs> right, we came and, about this independently, which means that's really interesting right. in this episode. And it's such a blip in the episode because it happens at the top and then uh, not to be revisited. And mm -hmm. that is the doctor saying holograms are not capable of choosing skip ahead a little bit it's all programs upon programs upon programs and Cass saying i base decisions on information stored inside my brain how is that so different from the way you access your programs mm -hmm. and i love that we are staying with this train of thought from episode to episode building slowly and that they are truly exploring the nature of not just the doctor, but our own organic intelligence and thought processes. We said it before that we are biological machines with, you know, quote, programming mm -hmm. that compels us to make certain decisions. I, I, that it's such a short moment, so approachable and understandable and says so much. Yeah. This to me, I think is the saving throw for this episode. This is a mm -hmm. hard roll 20, you know, mm -hmm. with no modifiers. I've been playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons like <laughs> online recently. So it's in my brain, Good. but Good. this is absolutely marvelous to watch. It's at the heart of Star Trek DNA, right? Exploring boldly going, not just to outer space, but to inner space as well. Yeah. Think about what's being said. Like Cass is saying, I base decisions, as you said, John, on information stored inside my brain. Now, from when the moment we are born, I mean, that, that's the tabula rasa theory mm -hmm. that we do not know anything until stimuli begins to forge our thoughts. And then we start to learn words. And then we start to learn higher concepts of theories and right. programs right programs contracts that constructs that make you behave in a certain way politically religiously sexually mm -hmm. you know uh humanitarily yeah. all of these just don't happen they happen because you are either have either made a set of choices or those choices have been made for you that now your set of choices are being built upon that's programming yeah whether yeah, we you, know it or not. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the framework that is your brain has certain limitations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and it's very easily malleable by the outside stimulus that you get. I mean, that, that is just simply what we are and, and how we operate. And I love when Star Trek can go down this route and do what science fiction does very well, which is hold up this thing that is this miraculous scientific construct like an EMH doctor with this uh, uh, infinite access to information um, dealing with the nature of existence and uh, decision-making and identity, but absolutely use that as a mirror to something that is so essentially human. It's the brilliance of a character like Spock or data, and here it is playing out perfectly with the EMH. Yeah, the great thing about this is like the most terrifying thing to most people is a choice, making a choice. Yeah, and that's what the that's what the doctor and Kess are kind of studying here. It's the doctor's choice to choose a name. Names have power. You know, they have agency. You know, they define you in other people's estimation. 
You know, what does your name mean? Your name comes from something. It's derived from something. So when you are forced to make a choice or when you feel empowered enough to make a choice, you're actually stepping outside the quote unquote algorithm of all of the programming that have led you up to that choice. Mm. Like I'm going to choose not to be religious or I'm going to choose Mm. not to do this job. I'm going to choose to quit my job. I'm going to choose to be happy. I'm going to choose to uh, drink that drink or to smoke that cigarette. I'm going to make those choices, but it's terrifying I, when it's on you, when the onus is on you to make that choice for yourself. Well, see, I, I would counter that by saying that a lot of the things you just described are not choices. They, they are programming. Mm-hmm. And I, whether it's something as profound as a, you know, a, a belief in a religious doctrine or, or whatever, that we don't choose our beliefs, that those beliefs are what we are convinced of. And what we get convinced of is based on a number of outside factors. Our mm-hmm. brains just simply follow uh, where you know, where that information you know, leads us and how it affects us on whether it's an intellectual level or an emotional level, a personal level. And it, or it might be something as simple as uh, picking up the cigarette or not. How much of that is actually a choice? How much of that is actually, uh, you know, a physical and mental and emotional compunction that either lands one way or the other? It's not always up to the individual because, hey, again, it's just programs upon programs upon programs. I haven't, uh, or we haven't uh, referenced music in a while, so I'm going to leave my thoughts with a musical quote, again from Rush, which I usually do. (laughs) If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. I love that. You naysayers can complain all you like, but let's face it, sandwiches on the bridge would have livened up this episode considerably. You know, sometimes, John, when we really dive into an episode, in my opinion, sometimes our deliberations are just as, if not more entertaining than the episode itself, <laughs> if I do Some, say so sometimes, myself. Sometimes they leave a lot lacking. <laughs> that, that's, sometimes. That's where our listeners come in like, no, 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 no. Try this. <laughs> and remember, if you have any comments you want to send to us, you can send it at missionlog at roddenberry.com. We can mm-hmm. read them on Engage yeah. if you'd like. But for us, John and I are in Engage in here, uh, as we usually do at the end of the episode, talking about ex post facto. Did the episode hold up for us? And what morals and meanings and messages were we able to mine out of this episode, if any? So let's open up the floor, John, <laughs> with you. And see how this episode held up, if it did. All right. Well, I, I feel like we did tip our hands a little bit earlier on. And yeah, let, let, let me ease into this by just saying that there's something strange and just out of step about this episode, apart from the style, which we'll get to as well. We've touched on a little bit, but we'll we'll talk about that as well. Sometimes I feel like it's a very good thing to just start a story in the middle. And you don't always need a ton of exposition. You you just get to where the characters are right now. Uh, From the start, though, this whole premise raises way more questions than it answers. And those questions are more interesting than what's happening on screen. Like, 
How did Voyager get here? What was the first contact like? How were Tom and Harry ingratiating themselves with the locals? Like, there's all this stuff happening, and it's just so weird. Like, they've been there for weeks. And they just, space liquor, John. It's space, space liquor. liquor. They, they had it, space know? liquor, and that ingratiated themselves to the Benians. Yeah. yeah, but it's just so... <laughs> like, the interesting thing about Voyager being stuck out in the Delta Quadrant is that everything is new. And these could have just been anybody. It, it, it's so weird the way that part of the story was handled and then you do have the issue of style this this experiment with noir does not work um we've talked before many times on this show about how sometimes star trek's format can stretch itself to touch on other genres uh but not all of those can be a success you know sometimes star trek will do the horror or comedy or whatever and and it can work uh but not all of them can work um and i want to take a second here because i think this is really important to remind everyone that michael pillar wrote this episode and it may go down as my least favorite Michael Pillar script, but that's okay. Because we need to get over this behavior that I see a lot online now of calling writers hacks and declaring that they don't possess talent if someone writes something that a viewer or a group of viewers don't like one day. Everyone, even professionals, are saddled with difficult premises, tight deadlines, problematic budgets, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and sometimes you just get a show that doesn't quite add up. And that is the case here. And it doesn't mean that Michael Pillar was bad at his job. Michael Pillar also turned in some of the absolute best moments and best episodes of Star Trek that have ever been committed to film. And here's another problem with this episode. And it relates to my first point about starting in the middle. We just came from such a strong episode with Eye of the Needle, where the strength was its focus and its look at the lives of the characters. And, and more importantly, it was an episode about the unique plight that Voyager has in being lost. This is a script that just feels like a rehash from DNG and barely acknowledges what makes Voyager's premise so refreshingly unique. So this is a flat-out no. For as many things as I've been on the fence about still this early in Voyager, this is a hard pass. Um, now, Norman, I'm going to leave it to you to save it and tell me why I'm wrong and why this episode should be more highly regarded. Are you going to do that? D20 roll one. Oh, wow. Wow. Critical fail. Okay. I can't save this episode. Um, you know, I want to be fair about something and I want to bring something up because there was a really good comment on Facebook not too long ago um, when we were wrapping up Deep Space Nine and one of uh, the commenters said, I really hope and he was addressing me personally. Mm. He said, Norm, I really hope that you turn your critical eye as you did on Deep Space Nine to Voyager when it comes out. And I responded back. I said, if the episode merits it, then I will. Sure. And I am. Yeah. Believe me, I am. And not specifically in this segment, in the next segment, in Morals, Meanings, and Messages. But for me, this is a flat period, out period, no period <laughs> when it comes to it, does this episode hold up. The only thing really redeeming about this episode is what John and I came to organically to agree on in 
um, our discussion points is the relationship between Kess and the Doctor. Mm -hmm. That arc so far has been absolutely marvelous to watch because it's so consistent. It's it's giving their characters agency. It's giving them exploration. They're growing from episode to episode. This is what you want to see in semi-serialized TV, and especially in TV that you're watching from the 1990s. But when it comes to the rest of this episode, as you said, John, you know, there's a stylistic choice that did not work. Michael Piller mm-hmm. is a legend in writing scripts and teleplays for Star Trek from the next generation to now. Just didn't work. It didn't work. Yeah. And things don't. You know, that's just the way things are. That's the law of averages. You're going to have a 95 to 97% success rate, but that 2% that fails, fails pretty mm-hmm. hard. Right? So from the production of this episode to the sets, to the costuming, the headpieces that we kind of <laughs> were not big fans of yeah. at all, yeah, it just feels so last minute. Hmm. It feels like someone forgot to tell everyone that they were shooting an episode this week. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. And... Yeah. I've said this before, and, and again, taking the, the Kess and Doctor very brief narrative arc out of this episode, I've said before on Mission Log that you know something doesn't matter in the grand scheme of the story if you can remove it from the narrative timeline and it changes nothing. Yeah. This right. episode could just disappear and it wouldn't matter. Yeah. Right? In any respect. We learn nothing about anything about the characters. Nothing. Yeah. Right? And that's unfortunate, but... I'm actually a lot more irate about this episode, not because of that, but because of one scene in particular that I find insulting as a fan of Star Trek. Mm. Mm-hmm. So going into morals and meanings and messages, because I I want to uh, – hold on a second, John. Let me <laughs> get that Apple soapbox <laughs> Good. underneath my feet. You, you have the floor. Yes. Right? So – In morals and meanings and messages, what I was trying to figure out is why this episode affected me so much from an emotional standpoint. Uh, I couldn't really find any morals, meanings, or messages. In fact, I found an anti-moral or an anti-meaning or an anti-message in this very quite strongly. And I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to frame this uh, in terms of, uh, say, a title for this segment. Mm-hmm. Now, John, are, do you like what do you like better, space, the boring frontier, <laughs> or boredom, the final frontier? Ooh. Which resonates with you most for Tom Paris in this episode? Well, I, I think honestly, it's boredom, the final frontier, because uh, Tom Paris has been to so many places, interesting places, done so many interesting things, surrounded by all these interesting people, and yet he chooses the path of most boredom. Which, yeah, it's frustrating. All right, so think about it this way. So if you're looking at it from, say, a real-time equation, you're fighting for your life every day. You're fighting to get home. There's going to be either an ally or an enemy around every corner. Every decision that you make decides the outcome of whether or not your crew and your family on the ship is going to survive. And you know what? It's boring. Mm Mm-hmm right yeah boring they use the word boring to describe his commission in starfleet what his job is supposed to be on the planet yeah let's let's relive that quote okay paris said i was bored you know how it is when two science guys get together let's double down on this with look i was just bored to tears in the other room and i thought you might like to talk when he's talking to liddell here's the, not just bored th- th- this is a master class in how to completely undermine a character in a few lines of dialogue. And I know, and I'm sorry to derail you here no, for no, a moment. Please, go ahead. But, but honestly, th- this is the place where I'm so whatever listener hates it when we put on the writer's hat, damn it, I'm going to put on the writer's hat because this would have been such an easy fix 
for an unremarkable episode, for an episode that still could not be saved, but you could actually save the character here. And that is that you could have Tom Paris working his ass off. You could have Tom Paris wholly invested in what's happening, but the work is very hard and he's got to step out for a minute and he's under pressure and all these other attributes that actually elevate what he's doing instead of just, Oh, science people are nerds. So Mm -hmm. I, they, 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 they partially ruined it by going this direction of just having him be the womanizer. And look, he can have a sex drive. That's fine. He could be interested in her and she can be interested in him. And yes, there are the, interesting interpersonal politics of her being married and that is inappropriate behavior etc fine those are still believable relatable things for him to just uh uh screw up this whole mission by being bored and then recount that to his captain dude you get a demotion sorry taking off my writer's hat No, I think those are great examples because there are those movies where somebody's so invested in the actual project that they're exhausted to the point of frustration or vice versa. And then it allows them to be vulnerable in that moment when they shouldn't. Yes. Thank you. Right. Yes. And and that's where Liddell is taking advantage of Tom's actual investment in being, uh, you know, so wholly into the success of what they're doing in their mission. But. Aside from him, he just says, I'm bored. What are you up to? You need to let me, you need to let your cigarette? Okay. I'm really bored. So you're a Starfleet yeah. officer, dude. Like, and, and maybe it's me. Maybe this, I'm, I'm still naive in thinking that that means something. But you're supposed to represent the best and the brightest that Earth and humanity has to offer. And now you're in a place where everything is dangerous and life or death is hanging in the balance of whether or not you're going to get home or whether or not you're going to, you know, find uh, your end in the Delta Quadrant. Why did this get let slide through? Yeah. Like, why did the writers let that slide through? Again, is it is it me? Or do I have a completely different understanding of what's expected from a Starfleet officer? I mean, if it was, say, like the Maquis, even if it was Chakotay, mm-hmm. I'd be like, okay, I get it. You know, you're wrestling with being a Starfleet officer again. I get that. You know, a non-Starfleet officer, like, say, a Maquis officer, sure, they're not invested the way that a Starfleet officer is invested. Remember what Janeway said in Caretaker? They're so disciplined mm-hmm. that they will follow my orders mm-hmm. yeah. as Starfleet officers. Yeah. Yeah. That means something. Yeah. So. Bottom line, John, is that in this episode in particular, and in your trivia alludes to this, mm-hmm. they don't know who Tom is. Yeah. The writers don't know who Tom is or what Robbie is capable of as an actor. Well, it, it, this it, far into it, the series. And what's worse is not just knowing who he is, it's then undermining the values you can bring to that character. Like, so, right. so they went the, the farther extreme here. Yeah. So I hope, I really hope that we see Tom. As the character, Robbie, as the actor, just get better material to work with. The writers are better than this. The actor and the character has the potential to be better than this. Let's see him become a three-dimensional character as opposed to, uh, you know, this two-dimensional paper flyboy. Yeah. Yeah. A- a two-dimensional is exactly the right way to describe, uh, well, all the characters here. Because I wasn't invested in uh, the the Ren saga, <laughs> the Ren family saga, or what was happening with the rest of the Benians, or any of that. It-, it-, it was just these invented scenarios that did not work. And 
Speaking of invented scenarios, that is the problem with the episode, and that's why we're using our morals, meanings, messages segment here to really just kind of, well, go off on the shortcomings. Uh, Star Trek is Star Trek, and it's not a procedural. And even though sometimes you can take story aspects, stylistic aspects from other types of entertainment and transplant them into Star Trek, um, you still have to be able to keep our interest with the characters. And the characters just fail here. Um, With the exception of, you know, again, that excellent scene with Cass and the Doctor. Tuvok Mm -hmm. is an MVP here. Uh, I feel like there's not enough Janeway, but we do get a couple of strong moments out of Janeway. But you've taken characters that have so much potential here. As you jokingly mentioned, I mean, Harry Kim just gets the short shrift right away. And then you undermine any of the good qualities that Paris has from the very beginning. Um, It's interesting, though. Would you agree that in the way that the, the, the narrative unfolded, like all the characters, maybe but Tom, who is the central character of this episode, got better arcs than he did? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Because, and that's the thing. It's like the, this is a kind of storytelling where it really is just, okay, we've got to rush to solve the mystery because this is going to be over in 45 minutes. But the problem is you have to build all the stuff that is the mystery before you get to the reveal in Act 4. So along the way, we got to talk a little bit about fairness and punishment and and some other interesting ideas that Star Trek has already handled in a much more interesting and profound way before. Um, ultimately, what this story is about is just finding the technical reason that Tom Paris is innocent. So it's Columbo in space. And I'm not saying that those ideas or attempts are all without merit, but they fail in every respect for this episode. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Emanations. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. I think we finally have the answer. This episode was both basic and fatal. End transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes Only from Intuit TurboTax. 
Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 